Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On our show today, we feature another episode of A Survivor Story, this time with Jordan, a cisgendered bisexual man who identifies as a feminist ally, is anti-racist and pro-LGBTQ. Jordan grew up in Dallas, Texas as the second child out of eight children in a fundamentalist Christian home who followed the teachings of the Institute and Basic Life Principles established by Bill Gothard. As a child, Jordan grew up isolated from his community, homeschooled by his parents, and often called upon to take an active role in caring for his younger siblings. Ever since he was introduced to a computer when he was 11, Jordan has been fascinated with coding and not only taught himself how to code, but also has made a career out of it ever since. At 32, Jordan left home to move to New York City and pursue a career as a programmer, leaving his family and siblings behind. His journey over the past several decades since then has taken him to the likes of Raves, Burning Man, Costa Rica, and finally, home to himself. By connecting with the range of people and places in his travels, Jordan has opened his eyes to the abuse and oppression he experienced as a child by his parents and by his church, and reinforced by the patriarchal norms that shape all of us in this society. Jordan is here with us today to share his story of survival and transformation. Welcome, Jordan. Hi. So you have a very interesting background. You grew up in Texas. You were the second of eight children in a fundamentalist Christian family, and you were homeschooled. Can you tell us what that was like? Well, I didn't know about anything else. So when I was growing up, it just felt like this is the way the world is, that, you know, this is the way it should be. And anyone that wasn't like us, really, they seemed like they're from another planet almost, that, you know, they're, they're either bad people because they don't believe as, as devoutly as we do, or they're dangerous to us in some way. And which part of Texas did you grow up in? Mostly Dallas, but we did move around to some other states. So in an urban area? Yeah, no, it was pretty suburban or kind of even beyond, you know, a little more remote. How did your parents get to Texas? Oh, they moved there to be involved with a Christian organization that was creating a curriculum for homeschooling families. Uh-huh. And what was the curricula called? Oh, that's Accelerated Christian Education. So what was your day like? You, you started off, was it like the same as any other school day? So nine to three, you know, what courses were you taking? Did it change as you got older? Right. Well, for me personally, it changed a lot because we had different subjects, science, mathematics, history, and my mother tried to organize it where we would learn a little of each subject each day from a book or from some curriculum. But then I learned computers and my father had an idea to have me be the provider for the family. So he pulled me off of my schoolwork a lot to do computer work so that I could provide for the family. So how old were you when that happened? It started when I was about 12. 
And how did he identify that this was an opportunity and, and that you would be the one to be able to help him uh, realize the opportunity? Uh, well, when I was 11, I learned programming from books and went ahead really quickly with it. And I was creating programs. And so he, he had some ideas for things he wanted to create. And he wanted me to be the one to create them because he didn't know how to do it. I see. And was the curriculum that you and your siblings exposed to, was it mainly Christian theology? How did they address science, for example? Right. So we used different curriculums over the years. The accelerated Christian one we started, and then we moved to the the uh, another one that I could tell you more about. But this the second one that we moved into, we were on that one for many years, and they had a lot of Christian connection to any topic, whether it was mathematics or history or social sciences. They would really spend a lot of time talking about the Bible and God and Jesus and all these things and connecting that with the curriculum topic. So it actually, I think in retrospect, it reduced the academic value a lot. Mm -hmm. And you also had direct study of the Bible itself, I'm guessing. Right, quite a bit. Okay. And what about sports? Did you have any physical activity, arts, music? Yeah, yeah, quite a bit of music. Uh, I learned music really early on. I I know music theory really well. I got into composition. I played instruments, and we had like our little family orchestra, kind of. And yeah, we we played soccer and street hockey quite a bit. So I got pretty good at those things. But it was kind of one of our only outlets since we were pretty isolated from the rest of the world. Hmm. So when you started learning computers. How much time did that take you away from your day to study the other subjects? Oh, well, the way my father worked out with that is he would have a deadline. He wanted something to be completed, and maybe he promised a publisher. And so I was creating software that was published in in national bookstore chains by the time I was like 14. And so he would pull me off of schoolwork completely for like several months at a time. Wow. And that's basically, and I'm guessing you didn't have a work permit at that time, because a work mm. permit age is, I think, 14, right? So yeah, you were well, working yeah. illegally underage. Even at age 13, yeah. I mean, our software was being published around the country, even in other countries. And so it was like, wow, this is a great opportunity. Why don't we just, there's no time for this schoolwork stuff. You can learn that later. And my mother would, would argue with him about it, like, well, we should have him doing both. And then finally he would say, okay, well, we passed that deadline. Why don't you go back to your schoolwork? So was your father representing to the clients that he had that he was the one who was doing the work? No, it was kind of a selling point that, yeah, I have this son that's really brilliant and knows how to do these things. So I would be in these meetings with some of the clients and they would be like, wow, we're really impressed. You know, your son can do this cool stuff. How did the legality of that come in? It Did it at all? It was never brought up. That's fascinating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I guess I was like a phenomenon. Like people were more ad- admiring that I could do these things at that age than they were concerned about my welfare, uh-huh. you know, because I seemed happy and content. And how did you feel about this? Did you feel like you were missing out and learning? Yeah, I, I at one point told my father I wanted to stop and he got upset and he was like, well, you don't have to do it. But really what he was saying, uh, the subtext was that he wanted me to keep doing it. And so I just kept doing it. I never actually fought back or, or asked him to let me stop because I wanted to be outside playing in the sunshine instead of sitting there at the computer the whole day. So before you started coding, 
what was the main source of income for your family? Oh, my father was working for that Christian organization, you know, warehouse job, you know, just packing things. And then he became manager of that. And he, you know, he has some different skills to offer and he could have done a lot of things, but he just got depressed and just laid around on the couch. There was no income and we were having, we were pretty broke most of my growing up years. So you basically were the sole source of income from what age to what age oh, for the family? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was a varying, like, yeah, there were definitely years that would go by where I was the sole source. And then there were other years where he would provide half of it and I'd provide half of it. It really depended on which year. But there were definitely years where I was in my early to mid-teens and I was the provider for my family. So I felt a little like I had to grow up too quickly and I didn't get to be a kid. And what was the relationship like that you had with your parents as a result of this? Well, I think I internalized so much that I became almost like a robot or just just really closed into my own world. And I didn't really share emotions that much with people, maybe with my siblings, brothers and sisters. But with my parents, I just, I didn't really, I would talk to my mom and I felt close to her. But my father, I, you know, I, I just kind of was afraid of him. So I would talk to him, but it was kind of fake. I wasn't really showing him who I really was because I felt like he could be threatened by it. Did you feel exploited in, in the role that you had that yeah. you didn't ask for? Right. I, I did at times, but I kind of, for some reason, I was kind of brainwashed by the whole religion thing. And, and we were taught that what I would consider a cult that I was in, this little sect that they, we were taught that the father is the head of the home and he's getting his instructions from God. So if God wants you to do something, he'll pass that through the father. So I just saw it as, well, I'm doing what God wants me to do because we're making Christian software for pastors and for families to have Bible games. And it was some of the first software of that kind. And it was very successful. And I just thought, okay, we're doing something for the greater good of people. And so I, how could I be against that? But I, in, inside, I really, yeah, I wanted to be free. I wanted to get away. And what was the relationship like that your parents had with each other? Hmm. Well, they argued some. My mother is very submissive. My father is more the dominant one, kind of the dictator. You know, if he got upset or if he wanted something a certain way, he got his way. And through yelling or anger, and there were times when she stood up to him, and there were times when she was slapped by him or pushed and some fights. It didn't happen that often, but there, but he exerted like a psychological control over her and the rest of the, the kids in the so, Such that people didn't step out of line. Right. For the most part, it was, it was kind of a, a bad idea to. And what happened if someone rebelled or, you know, challenged something that your father asked for? It's hard to say because it didn't happen much at all. And if it did, it was in very small ways. But I'll give you an example. I had been listening to rock and roll on the radio and I was staying at some friend's house to do computer work for them for a period of time. And my father found out, I won't go into it all, but he he came over there, he took me, you know, he was just enraged and took me into the car and, you know, he just... It goes on a kind of a rampage of not exactly physical violence, but like verbal violence and, you know, threats and like uh, worries over Satan and demons and all these things. And what was he concerned about the the fact that you were doing work for someone else that wasn't 
requested by him? Oh, the, no, the computer he, work or he wanted part? me there. He put me there so that I could do this work to make money for the family. But it was the, that I was doing things while I was living at that house for several weeks or something. I was doing things like listening to rock and roll. Oh, so he was upset at the rock and roll part. Yeah, that I had watched a movie that he didn't want me to see, that I had listened to music that he didn't want me to listen to. And he got me out of there as soon as he found out. Was the family also... Did they belong to the same fundamentalist Christian? No, they were more more liberal Christians. I would say they. So it's surprising that he was surprised. That, I, that I, he I would, put I me feel, there. Yeah. That well, he, or was he maybe was it a test? Did you feel? Uh, no, he just took a risk. Maybe he thought that I would be more submissive than that, and I wouldn't be doing those things. Maybe he just didn't think ahead. But but he needed the money from that project. It was a Christian software project. It was important to him. What happened after that? Did you stop rebelling after that? Or did you, you know, sort of self-censor? Yeah, I think that that was my first major rebellion. I was 15 years old and I kind of stood up to him at some point there. And then I just went into hiding for, for years to come after that. And what was the relationship like between your parents and your other siblings well, each of us had a different relationship, right? There were originally four of us, and then later they had four more right before I left home. They had two of them and then the other two after I left home. But the first four of us, each of us kind of had a different connection with the parents. My sister and I were both very timid and kind of like damaged and made to fear my parents a lot. Whereas the the, the next two, my two younger brothers, weren't quite as afraid of them. They kind of, you know, flouted the rules more often and not. Is that because they were treated differently by your father or their personalities were different? I think because they didn't experience the level of intimidation that we did, because maybe my parents got that out of their systems when they had me and my sister, and then they just maybe came to a different place in their lives and stopped treating the children quite as quite as uh, badly. So... At what point did you decide that you wanted to leave and you know Texas and and your family? Right. Well, while I was at home, it would come to my mind once in a while, right? And it was this feeling of, well, what would I do? Maybe I could just get out of here. But then it just felt too big to even consider that, well, they would be so pissed off. They would be so upset if I left that I would, you know, they would shun me or I would be on the outs with them, it would be terrible. They would, who knows what could happen. It was really scary. So I didn't really think actively and make a plan of leaving. It had come to my mind once in a while. So what happened was I started working an office job when I was like 21. And the people at the office were interested in my story. And what, you know, what is this all about? You're from a very different background than the rest of us. And why is it like that? And what would you like to do now that you're coming of age? And and some of them were able to support me in, in getting out of there. Did your father support your joining that office environment? Well, he did, but with with hesitation, you know, because he was like, well, reluctantly, like, you know, you're older now. I guess I got to give you some freedom here. But, you know, they had warned us and warned us about the dangers of sins and all the bad things in the world and people will get you and... And one of his friends, who was also Christian, that he trusted, worked at the company. So maybe he thought the guy's going to keep an eye on me. Like a chaperone. That I'm not going to get into any trouble. Uh -huh. He'll hear about it. But the guys at that office took me out for my first drink. 
And Including his your dad's no, friend? No, he didn't know oh. about that. And, and then I danced with a woman at that bar as I was having my first drink. For the I first was, time. I'd never danced, you know, so it was really different. And they were like, it was almost like a little benign peer pressure that they had. Like, you know, hey, man, why don't you, uh, what's your deal? Why are you still at home with your parents? You're old enough to get your own place. And I was like, well, but they wouldn't like that. And they're like, come on, just do it, you know? And so it was kind of like, okay, maybe they're right. I don't want to, I don't want them to think I'm stupid. So maybe I'll, you know, that was part of the, the impulse, but it was also just the idea. It was scary. It was just the idea of leaving because, uh, I had been brought up to believe that I really needed to do what my parents wanted, especially my father, or they would be really upset or bad things would happen. And it, it was in, like unfathomable to go against them. So your parents' expectation was for all the children to not just remain nearby, but to remain in the home too? Did they have that expectation? Yeah, they kind of did. It was part of the Christian fundamentalist teaching that we had was they had this idea about when you go off to get married, they had this whole process around it that you would have this courtship instead of dating and that you would work with the father of the the woman. The, The guy would go to the father and the two of them would... I don't know, make a deal or something. And then then eventually the guy would leave his parents' home directly into being married. So not ever to spend time on his own out in the world because there's no shelter from like the temptations and evils of the world. So did that ever happen to you? Did your father expect you to marry someone in the community? Oh no, it was it was more about I guess the the concept of it was if I saw a girl that I was interested in, maybe I would go to her father, but it wasn't really an arranged marriage by my parents. I see. And so um, my parents didn't have really an idea. They actually didn't really think that they wanted us to do anything anytime soon. And at the time, you know, they just felt like they wanted to keep us there and keep teaching us more until they felt like we had been perfected into the best devout Christians that we could be. That was the most important thing to them. How would they assess that you got to that point? On their own judgment of... So it's um, completely subjective. Yeah. It's not like you needed to cite, you know, like the Bible, you know, perfectly or or um, engage in certain kinds of behaviors and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, there wasn't exactly a standard. It was more that they felt that, well, you know, you're not really quite there yet. You're going to go out in the world and fail and do bad things. And we have to keep you here to protect you from the temptations out there. Was there ever a girl growing up that you liked that you wanted to date? Yeah, there were a couple that crossed our paths. So we had contact with other families that were in a similar like homeschooling fundamentalist Christian background. And I had a couple of times when I was kind of eyeing someone like, hmm, you know, she's, she's pretty, I'm interested. But it was kind of like, so far away from being possible to even approach that thing. And like, well, then I have to marry her. I can't just like get to know her first or something, you know, like, well, there, you could have a chaperone date or something, but it was, it was this culture that was very limited and kind of old, based on an old fashioned model about this courtship model. So. so basically you voluntarily pulled yourself out of the dating scene, so to speak, because you didn't want to commit to marriage because that was really the only option you had. Well, I didn't get out of the house. So <laughs> Well, I mean, you could have you could have had chaperones on your dates. Yeah, but I was also pretty much computer nerd and very antisocial and very nervous around people and I was more comfortable at my computer than with people mm, at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So, so then when you were 21, you were at this company. So how did you go from there to New York City? Oh, wow. Well, it's a long journey, you know, a couple of decades in between there. But Oh, so I thought you went for, straight from 21 to New York. Well, no, oh, it was so, more like 31. Okay, what, what happened after yeah. t- at 21? So, Where did you go? So I left home, I got an apartment. Well, you know, it's interesting about when I left home because, you know, I, I know part of the theme of your show is about abusive families and, and domestic violence and child abuse. So with my abusive father, he had such a grip on me as not only his source of income for the family so that he wouldn't have to work as much, but also just kind of as a cult leader, as I consider him to be, that he felt like he couldn't let go of me from going off to get an apartment, let's say. And so what happened was I told them, look, I think I, I might want to move out. And and they were really upset. And well, you know, we got to talk about this because what, you don't love Jesus anymore? And just that it came out of the blue, you know, I was still Christian or whatever. And they were just beyond, you know, overwhelmed with this revelation. So then they went off into the other room to talk. And I I was like, okay, you know what? I can't wait another minute. I, I went upstairs and threw some clothes into a trash bag and just got in my car, which they had bought me a car. Bad idea. If you don't, if you want to keep me at home, don't buy me a car. So I just got in my car and took off. My father followed me in his car because he's a weird and creepy stalking type of, you know, dictator, abusive parent and followed to try to like bring me back. I don't know if he watched too many movies where people do these heroic things and chase after someone and in these like what we would consider stalking ways, but that's kind of what he did. And so I actually like stopped somewhere because I knew he'd be following me. And I stopped somewhere and like saw him go by and stopped my car where he couldn't see it. And saw him go by looking and then saw him drive back to the house. And I was like, okay, now he's gone. Now I'll drive on to my friend's house. And so it was, I was really like excited, but also very scared. I was launching myself into the world, into a completely new environment out of, and kind of as an embryo out of this shell that I had been in. And I didn't know what to expect from the world. So you were in that apartment on your own for a while. And then what was next? Well, pretty much from there, I went right into the raver scene because I I guess I wanted to have a good time and I felt like I'd missed out on a lot of things. So I became kind of a candy raver kid with like uh, pacifiers and, you know, glow sticks and glitter on my face and stuff like that. This was in Texas? Yeah, we had a really big rave scene. Wow. Actually, there's some movies like about it. Party Monster is a well-known rave movie and a lot of setting in Dallas because there was a big Dallas raver scene going on. And I saw some of the big names performing like they were in the movie even. And I was also DJing and I had a lot of kind of party friends that would come over to the house and sleep on the floor. How did you get involved in DJing? Because you had to learn what the music was. Well, yeah, it wasn't that hard to learn compared to some of the other instruments and things that I'd done. It was just fairly straightforward. A lot of DJing is bravado and kind of like ego, unfortunately. But I had a lot of party friends crashing over. I tried some different substances. I don't advocate any of that stuff. I will say that psychedelics are, from my experience, was not addictive and it did actually make some changes, I think, in my brain structure and the way my brain worked so that I was able to see beyond the limited framework of the religion. So are you saying that if you didn't engage in those drugs, you might not have been able to see beyond? It could be because I still, for many years after that, even despite all of that, I 
I still have had a lot to deal with over the years to try to recover from the religious abuse and the psychological oppression. So what what was next for you after the rave scene? Because this is why you're still working as a coder, right? I'm right. And I a DJ? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, did, I did the programming. I did some DJing. I did a lot of dancing, and I really enjoyed that. I think dancing was really therapeutic and just all night for hours and hours and hours. And at some point, I guess I kind of felt like I got something out of my system after two or three years went by of that. I decided to live kind of on my own, you know, away from some of my party friends and kind of do some writing and, you know, lay in a hammock in the middle of a field and different things like this. So I was able to just be alone for the first time when really in my family life, uh, we were a lot of us in one house, you know, with this oppressive father and, and even mother. My mother was like a very kind-hearted person in her own right, but she believed herself to be non-harmful when in fact she was the one perpetrating things in this kind of soft, gentle way, perpetrating restrictions on her children, like, well, we can't have you doing this. And so we we would be like, oh, but I want to do that. And then if she told my father, then he would come in and be like the bad cop, like, oh yeah, you're going to go against what your mother said? Ah, then he's going to bring the heat on you, you know? So like in her gentle way, she was just as much an agent of that restrictive container around us. So were there any people in your life that you met at that point that had an influence in helping you gain some consciousness and awareness of what that experience was like that you had as, as a child? Yeah, I did have some teachers and friends that came along around that time. And in particular, my friend Knox. And Knox was a kind of really older hippie that had spent a lot of time studying different world philosophies and religions and had kind of his own philosophy to offer. And he was really into Bob Dylan. He was really into the psychedelic experience and art. He's, you know, he was a known artist, I guess, and teaching art in California in a college. And so he helped me a lot to to work through stuff and to talk about it and to with this with this psychedelic experience that he would he would guide me through it as something constructive. And I know psychedelics were used at one time even in therapy, even back in the 70s or 80s before it was made illegal. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what was happening for me. It was being used in a therapeutic sense. And so I went and lived at his house in away from Dallas and spent some time, you know, with him and his wife and that was helpful. And outside of that were you engaged in your own therapy with a licensed professional? No, I only went to one or two sessions. I was recommended to go to by some friends at work. And I didn't really move forward with it that much. I, I thought it was kind of weird that the guy would just sit there and not say a word and just look at me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, why doesn't he say anything? Why, you know? And later, it was many years later that I really started getting serious about going to a talk therapist, a psychologist. And that was extremely helpful. And at this point, were you also catching up in the learning that you missed out on as a child? Oh, well, that's a good question. I think I have a mind that absorbs a lot of information. So I pick things up if I need them. And I I read a lot, especially online. We have all this information available to us. So I think I've augmented my knowledge in a lot of different ways just through reading. But I I never actually went to any formal college, although I did go to one semester of a drawing class in art school. But that's all. So you you have, when you were young, you had 
I'm guessing a um, high school equivalency diploma. You ha- right because that's the law, right? right? So you had to have gotten that. Sure. Okay, as a child, and and then just never pursued any formal post secondary education. That's right. Yeah. Okay, and so you're so completely self taught. You're an autodidact. Well, right. Well, in computers, there's a lot of that. In mm-hmm. in IT world, if you go, at the time that I was learning com- programming and computers, the colleges were way behind what was actually happening. And nowadays, they're much more up to date, but they're always a little behind. And it's usually stuff that you need to just get in there and and work with it and read articles and. And within sometimes a very short time, you can pull up the answer and, oh, this guy says on a message board that he tried this way and take, I'll take some of his example code and put it over here and try it this way. And it's really, that's the way the process works. If, you're, if you put it into a formalized like test and exam and everything, you can do that. But I didn't go through that, and maybe it's fine that I didn't because even when I went to an investment bank later, and worked as a manager of a software development team, they waived their degree requirement for me because they said that because of what I had to offer in my resume and what they were looking for, that they were okay with me not having a bachelor's degree. Oh, so you were, so this is when you were in New York. Right. When I was that, I'm sorry to jump ahead. Just oh, okay. No, no. Let, so you you were in Texas for about a decade, and then what? At some point, you decided to move. Yeah. What, what prompted you to do that? Well, I guess I was going through a change. I just gone through a divorce from my first wife. Oh. And we didn't. So at oh. what point did you get married? <laughs> oh, we're going sequentially, <laughs> right? Well, okay. So you know, back in '99, I guess it was. I had been gone from home for almost five years. And I met someone online and we had a lot in common. So we got married and and we didn't have a kid, but we lived together. She was also a programmer and she was also homeschooled. And so we had all these things that we had in common. We tried to make it work. You know, it was a much different life than what I had had as a single guy. But after that was over, I guess I wanted a change and maybe move to a different city. I see. So I chose New York. Okay. And what was that like? Was it hard to fit in? Oh, no, I felt great from the moment I stepped into this city. I just felt like, wow, this is amazing. And there's so much to see, so much to do. And people from every country, whereas in Texas, it was a lot more homogenous. And did you feel that your background was in any way an impediment to connecting with other people at all? Did people question your you know, childhood, your your upbringing in any way? And I mean, I'm surprised mm. that you said the investment bank waived the requirement for the education. I've never heard of that before. Right. I yeah. don't know. They, I guess they don't really do unusual. that. Yeah. yeah, they don't do it that often. It's pretty much a degree requirement. That's why people go and get a bachelor's or at uh-huh. least or a master's or something, because they know that a lot of companies have that as a requirement. But mm-hmm. they chose to set that requirement aside. I did some very good work for them. They were, they were really happy with the work. And so I stayed there almost four years. But coming into New York, no, I felt really comfortable. The thing I liked about it was that people in New York would talk a lot and talk very freely and almost excitedly and use a lot of words. And it's kind of this enthusiasm for life that comes out through the talking. And I felt a little like that was my people, that uh-huh. I'm, I'm also like that. Uh huh. Did you get a chance between um, Texas and New York to visit any other parts of the country? Well, I've been around a little to some parts. I used to work out of Chicago, downtown Chicago, 
for some amount of time, but I, I didn't feel the same way as I did in New York. I think New Yorkers feel that way too. Yeah, it's something about <laughs> we don't feel quite at home in Chicago either. Right. <laughs> but I think it's also what makes it work maybe in New York is how compressed everything is into a smaller space that it makes people encounter each other more than they would in a more spread out city. Mm-hmm. And you identify as an intersectional feminist, you're anti-racist, pro-LGBTQ, AI. At what point did you come up with that self-identity? Well, I guess those are things that evolved for me pretty organically. I'm bisexual. That is something I discovered maybe six years ago, seven years, something like that. Mm -hmm. But even before that time, I had a teacher who kind of introduced me to spending time thinking about issues around racism, sexism. And I had before that, you know, maybe years before I would, if you asked me, yeah, do you support feminism? I'd be like, of course, it's, you know, I want to see women be empowered and I'm not against that. I don't want to see women being subjugated because I saw my father doing that to my mother. I wouldn't want to be that person or support that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. But I don't call myself a feminist. I consider it, you know, I call myself an ally to feminism. Mm -hmm. But I think that I have a lot to learn and that, you know, if there's things I can do to, to improve myself or to improve the world around me, I definitely want to do it. And I want to educate others, keep educating myself. I had one teacher in particular who, who was a social justice act, activist, and she got me into uh, some books and articles that really opened my eyes to my own internalized oppression, whether it be racism or you know, homophobia, misogyny. And when I saw that, I kind of realized, oh, so these are things that I could perpetuate without even realizing that I'm doing it. I'm curious, what were they? Do you remember the the titles of some of those texts? Yeah, there's some that I forgot, but she had a lot of articles that we had a weekly meeting and she would hand out these Uh articles. And I don't remember the names from those. I do remember one book in particular called Witnessing Whiteness Uh that I read that was just about what is the concept of whiteness? How did this come about? There was another one. I thought it was called Soul Slavery, but I can't recall the title. And do you feel like... If you just had access to this information passively as a reader, mm. do you think you would have had the same response to it than having someone sort of guide you through the exploration of its meaning? I think having the personal connection made a big difference because I had a lot of respect for her as a teacher. She was teaching me in, in something else. And she brought this forward as part of you know what she wanted to offer. And because of my respect for her and because of her, you know, recommending this, this course of study and organizing a circle of people to meet every week and talk about it. That's probably what brought me into it more so than if I'd seen it, I might, you know, I might be interested, but I might not have delved so deeply to be able to examine myself and some of the patterns within myself that. Were you aware of any of these concepts just but just unable to name them when you were younger? You know, did you feel feminist sensibilities about equality, gender equality, or... Because right now, as you're describing your childhood, you're very articulate in naming things. Hmm. And I'm wondering if you had that feeling when you were young, just not the words to describe it. Probably so. Yeah, I think that I saw racism. I lived in the Deep South at one point, and I saw... 
people using racial slurs and saying things that I didn't even know what they were saying about black people in particular. And, and I was kind of like, well, why are they doing that? What's, what's the problem? Why would they feel the need to, you know, and I was kind of like puzzled. And my father was very racist and, and homophobic and misogynist, all of that. And so he would have a lot of jokes or cracks or like, you know, slurs and things against women, against minorities and, and, you know, just mockery doing voices, you know, voice impressions and all these things. And maybe at the time as a kid, we would even laugh because we were like, oh, daddy's being funny. We're supposed to laugh. Then he'll be happy. You know, he wants to see us laughing at his jokes. Otherwise he might get mad actually. And then we could be in trouble. Did your siblings feel that way too? Or do you think they genuinely thought it was funny? Well, you know, when you're, when you're a small enough kid, you may not know, you know, the difference you might, at some level you might know, but if it's your father and you have a lot of respect for him, you might think, well, whatever he does, it must be okay because he's like God. And so, yeah, I think all of us knew on some level somewhere inside of ourselves that this isn't really that a good idea that we're making fun of this person from this other culture. So you've been away from Texas for over two decades. Is that right? Yeah. More, okay. And how often do you visit your family there? Oh, not that often. Just in the last couple of years since I had my second child, I started going over there more like to see my siblings and their spouses and their kids more so than to see my parents. And what kind of relationship do you have with your siblings and your parents now? Right. Well, it's different for each one and in each parent and each sibling. You uh -huh. know, we have a unique, different kind of connection. I have one brother that I'm very close to who's the only other atheist out of eight kids. And him and I talk all the time. Is he one of the first four kids that yeah. you're referring to? He's the youngest of the first four. Okay. He's seven years younger than me, but he has two kids also. And so I just, I have a three-year-old child. I also have a brother, another brother who's 20 years younger than me, and he has a one-year-old child. So I'm having babies at the same time as my siblings who are 20 plus years younger than me are also having them. And so we, we have different types of relationship. The older ones I'm closer to. My parents, I kind of have this this way of distancing myself where I would see them, talk to them once in a while, and I feel like that's enough. Because if I talk to them too much, it might mess around with my own process and I, I feel like I'm better off. So you've come to peace with what happened to you as a child, but have you had a chance to address it with them? You know, I did a few years ago have a chance to sit down with my father. I told him I wanted to have a sit down with him and be able to kind of vent some of my rage from the past and and see if that could be productive. So we sat down and I just told him some things like how he was dominating and how, you know, he can never dominate me like that again because I'm, I'm stronger now and just things that I needed to say to him. And he, you know, he handled it as well as he could. And then he was kind of like, okay, this is all I can handle of this. You know, he's, he's not very good at these things. Having an honest emotional conversation is not his strong suit. Did you have any similar conversation with your mother? Yeah, a little. But the problem with my mother is she's very quick to say sorry and say, will you forgive me? And it's too much, you know, because uh, she's very self-deprecating. Uh -huh. So like if I, if I were to say these things, I really feel like 
it should be targeted to my father since he was the one in charge and even pushing her into a lot of this stuff. Uh And she is culpable because she did things like cover up abuse that happened for many years and she pushed a lot of the oppression forward. So I'd like to address that. She was complicit, basically. Well, she not only was complicit, she was also pushing forward things that my father might not have even wanted for us, like restrictions on us that he was like more relaxed about it. And she was like, no, you can't let them do this because they might get into sin. So she, she was just as much of an oppressor in her own way, just with a different flavor to it. And so I'd like to address that with her. I think it is an important part of the process, but I honestly, I think it's been very helpful and valuable for me to not speak to them for a lot of years so that their, their voices kind of faded out of my consciousness. Mm -hmm. And how is it that your other brother, your younger brother became an atheist too? Was that from your influence or Hmm. his own journey? I think it's both. I think that I had definitely had an influence. Yeah, I I think he had an ex-wife who was also atheist, and I think that oh, was wow. part of it. So he married someone who wasn't Christian, who was yeah, an atheist. Yeah, he kind of rebelled more so almost than I did. You know, he was he was sneaking out of the house and going to parties when he was sixteen, and he was doing things that I didn't do at those ages. So he was a little more uh, courageous to rebel. And your father didn't try to repress that. Yeah, he tried, but my my brother was getting ready to like fight him physically on stuff and just really stand up to him, which I wish that I had done, but I never had the enough courage at that age. So looking back, what do you think separated you from your other siblings? Like, was it the fact that you had access to this other world through the computers that, or was there some sort of nature that played a part as well in who you were and your personality that, you know, made you question the, experiences and and the ideas that your parents were Hmm. advocating? That's a good question. I guess I I did go into my own world because of the computer and because of just everything that got suppressed within me. So I guess I created my own bubble, a shell around myself. And within that, I could dream anything I wanted and I could imagine things and, and question things and challenge ideas. And so I kind of harbored a secret set of ideas that, you know, maybe all of this, these ideas are not really true that were being taught. But for many years, I kind of kept that a secret that I was harboring some dissent against what we were being taught to believe. So someone from outside looking in, were there any clues for them that you were, you had these seeds? So if they wanted to sort of give you an olive branch to, you know, help you explore them, was, is there some way that they could tell? Probably not, because I, I wasn't very communicative and I my personality was very flat and dry and like limited in, in how I could express myself. So what you see today from me, I have a lot more expressiveness because I did a lot of work on myself to to get there. But I think when I when I went into that office job that I was talking about, the colleagues that I had were able to draw a lot out of me by just you know, hey, you're you're a guy, you want to have a good time, you want to meet some girls, guys, whatever you're into, you know, let's go have some fun. Come on, you know, what's who are you? What do you what do you want to do? And and I was like, wow, these guys actually want to be my friends. And and so that that was what drew me out, I guess, more than anything. 
mm. and wanting to be able to to hang out with them and have a personality that I found while、well, my personality was really awkward. I was I would sit down and speak with someone new, and I'd be shaking because I was so like nervous with social anxiety. So when you you had referred back to your childhood and your homeschooling to the Institute of Basic Life Principles, and they're famous for. Being affiliated with the Duger family, the TLC's Nineteen Kids and Counting. So I'm curious. In the news it's been reported recently, I think last year, that the pastor who was affiliated with that church, Bill Gothard, who also has political connections with many Republican leaders such as Mike Huckabee and Sarah Palin, that this individual. Was accused of multiple allegations of sexual harassment and molestation. Did you have any idea that this was happening? Because you had met with him when you were young, isn't right. that right? Yeah, I did not ever believe that he could be capable of such a thing. Even when I heard it on the on the news, I was like, "No, this can't be true." Even being who I this is pretty recent news, and even、uh, being who I am today, I I couldn't believe it because I had admired him so much. I thought of him as like the most perfect Christian, devout person who could do no harm to anyone. Kind of like a monk that like well, he would never want even want to be sexual, let alone cross anyone's boundaries. He's so kind. He's so humble and honest. And you know there are a lot of leaders in different circles like this that might put a lot of ego. On their self, like you know, look at me. I'm important, and I felt when I was younger that he was kind of the opposite. That he really had what felt like a real sincerity and genuine humility, and I admired that in him. I admired a lot of his ideas that he that he had, you know, conceptually, intellectually, but it was a, it was around theology, you know, and, and Christian thought. And so I did meet with him. I sat down and spoke with him. On a number of occasions, even one on one, and at different events, we we went up to their headquarters, and him and I spent I don't know like an hour, just the two of us talking, and so I know him pretty well. And even the current leader of that organization, who replaced him, used to live not far from us and used to come to dinner at our home. So we were pretty well tied in with that organization, and that's a cult. It's not a church. It's it's a homeschooling cult, I would call it. It's a and Bill Gothard was the the founder and the leader of that of that organization, and the idea is to put it in into a nutshell. It's like we are more devout because we don't do these things and we do these things, and so that makes us kind of special. And to be like us, you really have to step up your Christian game and. You know, stop wearing low-cut shirts if you're a woman, but not if you're a man. That's okay. And you know, maybe wear a, a skirt down to your ankles, something like that. No, no more rock and roll. You know, there's a lot of these things they call their standards. It might be similar to something like the Mennonite Church, where they they do a lot of that covering the body and the dating thing that I talked about earlier with the courtship. That's also part of. His organization, so they have spend a lot of focus on what they do, which is the Bible reading, memorizing the Bible, doing dissecting the words, using Greek and Hebrew studies, doing anything related to the Bible and prayer and memorization, and so theology stuff is extremely important to them. So they made this academic curriculum, but I wouldn't even call it academic because they kind of like 
brush past these academic concepts on their way toward the Bible because that's what they believe, that this should all be centered. And they also believe in having a lot of children, as you could see with the 19 kids. And this, we were brought up to admire that, that, you know, look at how God gave them all these children. And so are you saying that because of your multiple experiences with him, you don't believe the allegations? Oh, no, not at all. Sorry, I didn't quite clarify that. As I read, and I'm involved in a, in a online group, a few online groups of people that used to be students in that curriculum. And some of there's actually an atheist ex-student group just related to this organization. And we're all, we call ourselves the apostates, which means kind of a non-believer. And so some of the, the abused women are members of those Facebook groups and post and talk about their experiences with trying to get their story believed. And I'm friends with some of them one-on-one -on -one, and the women that were that were molested or, or harassed by this man. And even though at first I couldn't believe it, but when I saw some of my my friends on the groups, you know, saying that it happened to them too, then I was like, wow. Well, I mean, not that I don't tend to believe victims. It's just that I had so much admiration for this man that I couldn't have believed that to be possible because he appeared to be beyond reproach, I guess you would say. I mean, isn't that the case for pretty much all perpetrators or predators, that there's this external persona that they have that they perform in public where they hide, you know, all of these characteristics that they're able to selectively display in private. Mm. And that's kind of, you know, the, the reason that amongst advocates and service providers of domestic violence victims and survivors that they don't advocate for anger management as an intervention because the cause is not the anger, because if it were the anger, then it would be displayed randomly, you know, to multiple people, but it's usually displayed selectively towards the victim, <laughs> right? And, mm. and so um, it's known amongst, you know, sort of the advocacy community and the service community that that there's this other side and that's that's kind of in many cases why it's so hard for victims to be believed is that people don't recognize and understand that and they also i think like you were saying you know they want to believe the good in people and you respected someone and so there must have been some sort of internal struggle that you were also grappling with mm. around the people in your life that you respected, that you looked up to, and what that would mean if they weren't who they represented themselves to be for all mm. those years. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, with someone like a parent, you know, they seem larger than life when you're a child. And I grew up with Mr. Gothard's teachings and his persona being kind of larger than life because he was, you know, we would go to his events and see him speak in front of tens of thousands of people. And so it's no wonder that I saw him as this, just because my parents saw him as this impeccable figure that out of every Christian teacher that they had ever encountered, he was the one, you know, that they just went with whatever he said, it had to be right. And so that, that explains why I also took that on because my parents admired him so much. So, so did the rest of your family or did your parents believe the allegations? Because obviously you did, so you must have shared the information with them if if this came up in your in your reunion meetings. Well, I emailed it to them 
And I think that at some point, I, I don't know, because I never talked to them about it. I think there are people among those circles that they go in that that would have rejected it and said, no, this can't be right. And then he himself came out and said, and with an apology, kind of, that, you know, he did something. But then later he kind of retracted it and went back and said, well, you know, that it wasn't really true. I think that, yeah, there's some amount of belief, but once enough of it came out, I think that at least my mother did. And it was kind of devastating for her. I don't know about my father. I haven't spoken to him about it. I just avoid talking to him. So for the women that are in this group that you mentioned who were victimized by him, are they now no longer part of the church? Right. It's not a church. It's a kind of an international Christian educational organization uh-huh. that has homeschooling stuff and they have seminars on Christian kind of teaching. And yeah, these are people who left it. A lot of them left Christianity completely and are agnostic or atheist. There are those who left that fundamentalist Christianity and they're in a much more progressive form of Christianity. But none of them are fundamentalist, the ones that, that I know of who were abuse victims. Mm. from that story. So do you think that that's what it takes to sort of question the theology or the you know set of practices that you were all subject to growing up? That there's a level of sort of crossing the line that needs to happen. And if people were to stay within a set of boundaries that um, you might not have moved outside of it? Well, maybe... Yeah, I think for my younger siblings, my parents saw that they had been a little hard on the older ones with the spankings and the restrictions and the humiliations. And and they went a little easier with the younger four kids. Those ones have more freedoms. They might actually wear makeup. My sisters wore pants and I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I'm seeing my sister wearing pants. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. And she's got lipstick on. What? What's going on? So they let her do that. She was a teenager. They, she wasn't, you know, of age yet. So I was amazed that they actually re- relaxed some of those restrictions enough to allow some, allow them to listen to whatever music they wanted. They saw that it was too much what they did, and they let go a little. But I believe, knowing them well enough, that it was like a calculated move to keep them in under the control and under the the religion. You know, I think religion could be beneficial for some people. So I'm not I'm not here to say that all religion is harmful or something. But this form of religion that was practiced in my family, it was used as a form of abuse. Really, that you know you can't really have your own thoughts and ideas and do what you want because you need to do what you're told and someone else is deciding for you what God wants you to do and things like that. So, so you know, now that you're immersed in a more progressive community, you live overseas, you don't really have to deal with, I'm guessing, the day-to-day that those of us who live in the mainland have to deal with in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, what's happening in the news and the constant updates, you know, and blows to our democratic institutions and cultural institutions. What is your, what are your thoughts with regard to how we can build bridges, if we should build bridges, if that's feasible, what the solution is to address the current problems that we're having politically and socially? 
Well, what kind of bridges? And- well, so, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are progressives who, from a politically expedient perspective, feel like we should just focus on swing state undecided voters or non-voters and not even, you know, just kind of like put aside those who are on the right and are still supportive of the administration, Hmm. that they're not going to change and they're dug in and there's no opportunity for transformation. Hmm. Uh, Do you agree with that? Oh well, I think there is, but it, I, I would I would agree that it's it's more difficult with some people than others because there are those who are dug in. You know, for example, I I know plenty of people like that from the fundamentalist circles that I grew up in, that they they will vote Republican until the day they die. It doesn't matter who you put on the ticket, and it doesn't matter what they do. Right, pretty much because it's it's almost as though God Himself is telling them to vote Republican. And even pastors in the church would advocate a political candidate, you know, in front of their congregation during a sermon. So, and usually it's Republican. So, so really, you know, there are those who, their voting party line, that's just what their family's always done. Their, their parents voted that party, their parents' parents, they're always gonna vote that party. And then there are those who don't vote. And then there are those who, yeah, like you said, it could be could be convinced to see things differently. I think anyone can change in different ways if they are motivated to change, but definitely some people have more of a fluid psyche, I guess, in terms of like being willing to take on new information. Cuz you were referring to your mentor or teacher who had given information, you know, during your teachings, and that was something that because of your conversations, you were able to absorb and be impacted by. So does that approach, do you think that's an approach that, you know, people are having fractures in their family relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And in probably their professional relationships too, where it's not something that people want to talk about because, you know, it could be catastrophic and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so what, how do we know whether in, in some ways a relationship is salvageable? Are you talking about a family relationship? Just or? anything, like if someone you know can be shifted and moved. You kind of have to make a judgment call, right? You know, you might try for some time. Like I had a marriage where I stayed for almost four years, and I there were some things that were extremely difficult for me. But and we talked about it in therapy for almost two years, and I I had to make a judgment call at some point that well, years are going by. I could wait more years in the hopes that this would change, or maybe both of us would be happier with someone else or alone. And I made that call, and she's now very happily married with a kid, and you know, and I also am happy and have kids and whatever. And so I guess maybe I made the right decision. But those things that I was hoping would change in her, and maybe she had things she was hoping would change in me as well, didn't make either of us necessarily wrong, maybe just not the right fit. When it comes to things like oppressors and abusers, hoping that they would change, it could be a different matter, right? Because maybe that behavior is motivated from some damage that they have, that they're kind of passing along hurt that they received. And who knows if they're not actually actively self-examining and doing some therapeutic work to transform that within themselves. Maybe that abuse is there to them as their form of therapy to hurt other people. I don't know how that works. Yeah. So hard choices. Mm -hmm. (sighs) 
really no answers. Just well, kind of just going with your feelings and what you think is right and what, what you're willing to explore and, mm. and until it doesn't feel right anymore. Yeah, like when I left my family, I guess I had hopes that I could stay and that everything would somehow work itself out. Maybe I could, because we had a very cozy and loving family unit. Even though there was abuse, there was a lot of things that we shared that were enjoyable, especially between the siblings. And even with the parents, there was uh, there were a lot of moments where we felt good being with each other. And it was very uh, closely knit family, which has its also its drawbacks because it can be stifling and limiting. But I felt very comfortable in that mm -hmm. over many years. And so I would say like when you're in something that you feel comfortable in and you are not sure whether you want out or not, you know, if, if you wait longer and sometimes you work up the nerve to like, maybe I'm going to leave this abusive situation or, you know, it has its pros and cons. It's good and it's bad. It's hurtful and it's also helpful, but Sometimes you have to work up the nerve and when you have worked it up, take the action then before you lose your nerve and go back and just get, you know, spend more years in it without questioning or without even considering leaving again. So you are referring to a lot of things that are individual inside of yourself that um, needed to happen for you to leave. Is there anything systemically in our society, you know, that we could do better to help have made that choice easier for you? Hmm. Well, I was really secluded in my, in my history when I was with this abusive family. We were secluded. We were kind of, we didn't go out that much. We would visit with other fundamentals, homeschooled families. So I think whatever society might've done, whether it was social programs or anything happening really outside of our bubble, we didn't have access to it. So, so really there's nothing that we could have done. Do you I don't know. Do you think, but that's partly because, or I guess mainly because your family was secluded and homeschooled. Yeah. But if you weren't homeschooled, then there could have been an opportunity at school if you were, you know, right. meeting with teachers. So you'd, what about when you were in sports? Were there any oh. people outside that? No, this was a uh, family sports. Oh, I see. We had my brothers and my father and myself two-on-two two soccer, two-on-two two hockey. Once in a while, some other friends would join. But it was, we played it a lot and we played very intensely, but it wasn't, once in a while we would go to some rink to play street hockey where there were people there, but my father was there. So if we were ever outside the home, my father was usually there kind of keeping an eye on things. There would be times when I would go off and talk to someone at some event or whatever, and my father would return back and my father would ask me like, so who was that? What did you, what did they say to you? What did you say back? What then, what did he say? And he was interrogating me about just a conversation with a human being that was not a member of our family, just to make sure that it didn't have any threatening elements that might be a challenge to his control. So, so in a situation where a child or a family or a woman is isolated, basically the only thing we can do is to be ready to support when you are ready to hmm. come and ask for support. Is Does that sound right? Or is there anything yeah. else you think? Well, hmm, it's a good question. I think, you know, we did have the newspaper 
we did have some TV, but mostly, you know, we had the paper and that was a different time where everything wasn't electronic yet. But the idea that if I had seen something in a magazine or a TV or newspaper or somewhere on a billboard, I don't know, that just said like, hey, if you're in an abusive family situation, you don't have to stay there, you know, call this 800 number when your abusive person is gone and just talk to us or I don't know, something like that. But I guess it's tricky because the, the abuse was not overt. I wasn't one of these people that their father came home drunk every night and smacked me against the wall. You know, there were only a couple of times when I was physically hit in the face, although we had the spanking with the stick quite often, which is also another form of child abuse, right? So I never thought of it that way because the way we were taught, well, the Bible says to use the stick on the child so they'll be a good person. If you would ask me, well, would you call someone to talk about how you're getting hit with the stick? No, that's that's what God says in the Bible to do. And I'm suppo that's supposed to happen. I did something wrong. So of course I'm experiencing punishment. But something like slapping the face, I knew, well, that's crossing the line. He shouldn't be doing that. I don't know. It's tricky to, to answer your question because I, I'm not sure, you know, to think about what did I have access to? It was just basically a few outlets. And I think that my parents, one of the things they feared the most was like the social, um, social workers that like when, if someone hears that, well, there's this family situation and they're not following the rules of, you know, they're not getting the children tested or, you know, academically like they're supposed to or something that, or there's some situation they're really secluded, then they could send social workers there and sit down and talk with the child without the parents and ask them questions and get really involved, potentially take the children out of that setting. Well, I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of problems with government social welfare agencies. Mm. And I think a lot of people expect that if a child is going to be taken aside in the home to be asked questions by a social worker, that that child may be free enough to tell the truth. Uh, but the other parent is still in the adjoining room. Right. So it's very often the case that they're not. So would you, I mean, do you think you would, have, you would have been able to feel comfortable if someone came in and asked you? Well, I don't think I would have lied, but I would have been like, well, they spank us because the Bible says to spank us. But you would have been free in giving the facts. You wouldn't have any sense that maybe that's not something you should share. Right, because in my family, we wouldn't have been encouraged to lie to them. But they were, my parents heard all these stories and they had this, this narrative that was going around the fundamentalist family circles, which was, oh, the social workers could come. You'll get falsely accused of child abuse. They're going to take your kids away. I and see. And a lot of families were fearing that. So if there's anything that you could say to our listeners, you know, who, children who were in your situation, hmm. maybe victims of domestic violence or coercive control who mm -hmm. are in your situation, what do you think they need to hear to help plant the seed in them that it's okay to consider leaving at some point and what, what can we do hmm. to help them? Right, I guess if I could... If I could uh, talk to someone in that kind of setting, I would want to encourage them to tune into their, what, what do you want? You know, who are you? What do you want from life? 
And who are you in the absence of this, this big figure in your life who's telling you what to do and controlling you? And that you can, you can make it, you know, you can find help and support. I know people who have left home at 14 or 16 or whatever, and somehow found a way and found help and, and gotten, you know, gotten on their feet and it can be done. It's not impossible. I stayed until I was 22 years old because I was terrified of the outside world. I wish I had left sooner. I guess my, my thing to say would be, you know, question authority. That's a, a quote from someone. And don't let your let your fears blow out of proportion because this this abuser, they most of their control. It's kind of like when you have a barking dog that the bark is so scary that you you fear what they might do. But often it's worse than the bite, and so that person may have you terrified of what they could do. And yeah, there can be some real physical danger in some cases, but there are also ways out like if you're able to, if you're mobile and able to move yourself out of that situation physically. And if you have, you know, you, they don't have the legal right to keep you there, let's say, or if you can appeal to organizations you know, governmental organizations, then say, look, I'm, I'm unhappy with this. But the first step is to just say, well, do I really want this to continue? Do I, you know, you have to weigh it. You have to figure out what, what outweighs in your mind, you know, staying and going the love that you think you're receiving and actually look at it in, in the light of day and say, well, I'm not only receiving love, I'm receiving control and abuse. And if I can name it that, maybe I can just put myself somewhere else in a more nurturing setting and leave that person behind and then allow myself to think for myself and make my own decisions. Well, I I also want to add, because you had shared with me an example of of something that had happened on on Facebook, the Mm. the meme that you had posted, right? You, as a white male, have a different level of access to institutions and to groups than other people, than women who might be in this situation. And part of it was because of your education and your job. Mm. You were self-taught and you had something that provided income, mm-hmm. right? So I would add to that <laughs> and tell me if you agree, education is is a key that mm. being able to educate yourself both from an intellectual perspective so that you could be free, mm-hmm. but also to find use it as a way to develop skills and generate sustainable income so that you can be economically self-sustaining and efficient, self-sufficient. Yeah, well, I guess it depends on the situation, right? So first of all, yes, white privilege is a very real thing. And I've learned enough now to realize that things that I thought just came to me magically wouldn't have come to a black person, a Latino person, someone, you know, who who was not white. And so I've started to, you know, open my eyes in this last, I don't know, eight to 10 years around that and then realize how that works. And so for someone struggling let's say, and they want to get out of this abusive situation and they're a young black man, let's say one of the most targeted people on earth, you know, young black men. And let's say that young man goes out and wants to just get out of there and go some, go anywhere, you know, get some help, get a place that's safe. 
well, he may end up in some very unsafe places and experiencing violence. And, and so that's a tough decision to make. I was just going to say in terms of the education that, you know, if someone is in a situation where they, they can they can stay, say, in that abusive home or abusive situation and do this education, maybe they're young enough that they don't feel like, well, I'm going to go out of here and, and just you know, live on my own or live with another relative or something that maybe, you know, again, it's a judgment call, like how, what's really going on? Are you being physically or sexually abused in some way? Then you don't need to stay at home to finish school before you leave. You know, you, you can go, you can go whenever you want to go. You know, I think there's, there's been some work around child rights and and you probably know more about this to try to give children the opportunity to get out of these kind of situations. I don't know how that's progressed in the past years, but maybe you could tell us about that. Well, certainly not being uh, protected in our child migrant situation Mm -hmm. at the borders right now. Right. But anyway, that's another story. (laughs) All right. Well, I think those are good tips to leave with. Okay. So thank you very much for your time today. It was I think very informative and helpful and I hope that our listeners will agree as well. Yeah, well great. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on. I guess as a as a white male, I feel like there's a lot that I need to do to educate other people who don't know about their own oppressive behaviors. So after I did the learning that I've done, like I realized that, you know, activism has to be part of my life if I care about other people in this world that I can't sit back and just let things happen. So having two small children, it's hard to be a lot involved in direct action. I have been in Occupy Wall Street. I've been in in some other, you know, some war marches and things, but I would like to get more involved in on the ground work in the future when the kids grow up. But for the time being, I, you know, I do some electronic activism, contacting representatives, And I really believe one-on-one things are valuable, even if you're in a group of people. And if I call something out and I bring up uncomfortable topics and I say, well, you know, let's talk about race or let's talk about misogyny or something among a group of men or let's, you know, and, and white people that I'm around often get really uncomfortable, awkward and quiet, and they just want to get off the subject as quickly as possible. And that tells me there's something to this because we need to talk about it. And I guess it I have to be the only one to kind of upset the apple cart and just, well, we're going to talk about this, so let's do it, whether you're comfortable with it or not. So Yeah, and I think because you have access to those spaces, you'll be more effective and, I guess, less threatening in a way. So thank you for that. Thank you for keeping those spaces active and engaged and good luck with that and hopefully... You'll be able to report back when we next talk about positive change. Yeah, I think it has to be kind of one by one that minds are changed. And, and it's you plant seeds one by one and it takes time for them to grow. And definitely even just little things can have a ripple effect. But it's at least I feel it's a responsibility whether that person changes their mind or not. It's my responsibility within myself to say something related to those topics you know, when people talk about something and I feel like they're leaving out the element of white privilege or they're leaving out some of these things, I I bring it up. I'm like, well, what's going on? There's a whole piece of the picture that 
that we're not seeing here. So I do some donating and I do online and in-person little bits of activism, but I'd like to be more involved in greater forms of activism in the future. Well, I think your being on this show is, is definitely part of that. Thank okay. you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.